Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so, so excited to bring you today's conversation with Teo. Uh, He and I seem to have so much in common, and it was really lovely to connect with him. I need to shout out Jenny, who initially uh, put me onto Teo's work a long time ago. It's it's taken me a while to get him on the podcast, not because he wasn't answering, just because I wasn't reaching out. Uh, but I finally did, and I'm really grateful that I did. We also connected a few months ago while I was still in Georgia. Um, he gave me a human design reading, which I'd never had before, and I really wanted to learn a bit about it, especially from someone who I thought was approaching... Uh, approaching it in a way sort of similar to the way that I approach astrology. So unconventionally, I guess I would say. And um, it was lovely. And I've been following Teo for a while now. And I just feel, I feel really grateful to find, I mean, in general, to find like-minded people, of course, that feels great. Um, But I think as you'll sort of here in our conversation and also understand if you've been following my work for a long time and especially if you've learned astrology from me at all that I find it really difficult to sort of find people who are like-minded and find my place in a world that is very complex and confuses me and upsets me sometimes and turns me off and like how do I or how do we in general you know feel a sense of belonging or cultivate a sense of home in a world or a culture or a practice that, you know, confronts us or feels alienating or feels like it's lacking in critical thinking. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult to sort of, to feel safe and secure while simultaneously thinking critically about that thing or whatever it is that we're considering. Um, and I think I'm the sort of person that actually feels very much at home around critical thinkers and very comforted by complexity. Uh, but I don't really feel like that's the way that most of the world is organized. And so when I found, when I find other people like Teo who have struggled with the same things, I think, you know, what he's sort of struggled with, um, in regard to human design is very, very similar to what I've struggled with in regard to astrology. And we had a little conversation after we stopped recording where he said, you know, I spent so long trying to get like everyone in human design to see it the way I was seeing it. When I realized there were a bunch of other people out there who were approaching so many different modalities, um, in the way that I was. And so maybe I didn't need to bring all of human design into my world, but find other people who are practicing 
a whole host of modalities um, or who were experts in a whole host of different fields and recognized that we all had similar core values, even if our sort of practices were different. Um, and I'm really finding that too. I'm finding that there is a whole community of people who are really interested in mythology and telling stories and using archetypal systems like astrology or human design, but also even just using ecology. Um, you may have heard Sophie Strand on the show. I think she's doing uh, very similar work to what Teo and I are doing in you know her own way. And that's been really cool. I sort of feel like there's a world that's been opened up to me um, that is this world of people who are, yeah, really interested in mythology and... Um, these archetypal systems of meaning, as Teo calls them, which I think is such a good word for human design or astrology or really just any way that we can see the world in a sort of non-mechanistic, uh, non-scientific way. So that's really cool. Uh, I'm really looking uh, forward to staying in touch and yeah, collaborating with more people who are doing this sort of work. It feels comforting and relieving and... Um, inspiring. So I am in Kanab, Utah right now. Chris and I rented an Airbnb here for a few days, waiting for our rental in Crestone to open up. And we are leaving here tomorrow, which means for the next five months, I will be in one place, which is crazy. <laughs> Maybe longer, but at least five months. Um, and I was just looking at this setup that I have here right now while I'm recording. There's this just like rickety table uh, that's very insecure that makes a lot of noises, even if you just like tap it lightly and thinking that this is the last makeshift workspace that I'll be working at for the next five months, which is a relief. Uh, of course, it's been wonderful and enriching, enriching and nourishing to travel. And I have so much more to share about all of that with you guys. I still feel like I haven't really, I feel like I'm just starting to like metabolize and understand and process all of the experiences that I had, both in their sort of, you know, mundane ways where we ate and the places we visited and what activities we did, but also like the lessons that were learned and the insights that came as a result of being among so many different cultures in so many different places. So I have so much more to share with you about that, and I have a lot of ideas for different series and things that I'm going to be bringing to Substack and feeling grateful that I'm actually going to have the time to do all of that. And like, I'm looking forward to doing more work, which uh, seems odd, but it's true. I really love doing this podcast. I love it just as much, if not more, than I did when I started. And it's been such a joy to bring Substack into the mix uh, in order to send out writing and poetry and really, and photographs and sort of um, make the project overall uh, more holistic. If you haven't subscribed on Substack, anyakots.substack.com is where to do that. It's free, although you can donate if you find this project valuable for only $5 a month. Um, and in addition to being sent emails every time I uh, send out a podcast, you can also comment on every podcast, which is a new feature, which is really cool. Um, there's also lots of other things going on on there. Most notably at the moment, 
I just relaunched our official podcast book club. Uh, There's an announcement that I made uh, on the podcast itself. So just click back and listen to that if you have not, or go to anyakots.substack.com and you'll see the information about the book club that's returning. I will be today sending out the information for how to join the official WhatsApp chat for the book club. So if you sign up and you don't see that email, you don't see the invite, um, just let me know, anyakots at gmail.com. So we can get you into the WhatsApp group for that. We're going to be reading Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard this month in November. Uh, And then we have a whole five months worth of books to read, uh, one book per month. I'm inviting on co-hosts and it's going to be really exciting. I'm really looking forward to reconnecting with you guys about books and other things that are coming soon as well. I feel like I'm just going to let you listen to today's conversation instead of doing my usual like 30 plus minute intro. (laughs) I feel like this conversation speaks for itself and really just outlines anything that I would be adding to it uh, unnecessarily. It's all there. It's already there. Uh, So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Teo and I hope to see you as a part of our book club. If you have any questions about that, um, always feel free to reach out to me. Substack is another great way to contact me or to engage in what I'm putting out. Uh, definitely very cool to sort of comment on the posts and leave feedback and communicate with with me directly. So looking forward to that, looking forward to meeting more of you online and in person. Uh, And yeah, I'm going to play you in today with a song I just heard by Nick Mulvey called A Prayer of My Own. And this album that he just released, um, I think is actually called, let me double check. Yeah. It's called new mythology. And there's a lot of really interesting songs that I feel like resonate not only with this conversation, but about a lot of the topics I, I think and talk about. So, um, I, I recommend checking out the album and pulling up the lyrics if you have the ability to do so. So enjoy the song, A Prayer of My Own by Nick Mulvey. Um, Please join us on Substack if you haven't already. Sign up for the book club. And that's it. Enjoy this conversation with Teo. I'll catch you on the other side. Help me 
stay Can we bear the unbearable? How to bear the unbearable? How to bear the unbearable? Finding the color of my rage, giving that rage a place. What the beast has a face with the grimace and such grace. An open heart in hell Well, well Courage to feel it all Hold us, keep us still When we want to run away Come on, Lord, help us stay And I do it for my own My little boy, my little girl And we do it for our own yeah. If we do it for the world So let it out and let it in Get to know that beast of Give him love and bring him in No, not an enemy, but a friend And in the fury of the fire In a timeless fire I find my ancient friend Lord, come to help me once again excited about this conversation. We had to reschedule it at least once. Um, but we're finally here. And uh, it's funny, I think actually a listener of mine, I think I mentioned a while ago, this must have been like a year more ago about how I knew nothing about human design and didn't hadn't really found anyone that I thought was like talking about it in a way that I thought was aligned for me and interesting. And so she sent me your work. And I think as it turns out, I think our work is aligned in like so many more ways than just through like a system like human design. Um, so I'm really excited to talk to you about so many different things today. So thank you for coming on. Yeah. So thankful that this could happen. And um, I had been following you for a little bit and then there, we had, you know, a little reading and um, yeah, it just immediately, like I was, I always call like there's certain people out there that I'm just like, Oh, we, we got some candy. <laughs> You know, like there's certain yeah. things we're talking about and 
yeah, just excited to be here. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah, of course. So why don't we start? I think we'll probably end up talking about identity a bit and the positives and negatives of that in general. Um, So I'd love to sort of hear how you talk about the work that you do and define yourself. Um, I think uh, you probably like me um, struggle because we're complex beings with lots of different interests. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you can sort of give the listeners some insight into what your biggest interests are and what you feel like defines you and we can kind of jump off from there. Yeah. And I'll just do a little, my, my protocols. Um, so yeah, and my name's Teo. I currently live in Ogopoge, which is um, a white shell place here in currently known as Santa Fe in New Mexico, Northern New Mexico. Um, I'm Leapon Apache and I'm a role member of the Leapon Apache band of Texas. And yeah, I'm just, the, there's, I'm glad you mentioned that Anya because I am infinitely like I don't know how to describe everything and I actually need two paragraphs to feel like to get into all the different (laughs) places that I venture but kind of got it broken down that I do the human design I'm a human design analyst um, and I do something that I call metamodern myth mending which is bringing a bunch of different concepts together and thinking about myth in a um, expansive way, not just like a critical way. And also do, I'm an indigenous futurist. So I do a lot of work around, I have stories and music and an artistic side of myself that I have a little less time for these days. Um, but I'm also thinking about crit, like critically and, and, you know, actually seeing some teeth into not just a romanticized way of how indigenous cosmologies, sciences, technologies, are going to support the world moving forward um, and reclaiming that. So, yeah, that's a little bit. And I'm really, really drawn, like most of my work revolves around reconnecting to landscapes, to our ecologies, connecting it to our eco-cultural communities um, and how that's just like a vital, that's absolutely vital to me. Like I don't see a future in which we are not doing that. Um, so that's sort of something I'm always pushing. So yeah. there's a little snippet. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, for sure. Me too, about reconnecting to nature and the planet. Um, so you've been doing human design for a while, and I would love to hear how you got into it and how this practice has evolved for you. And I'm sure it's evolved a lot, but some key ways. Um, yeah. Something that I... I think a lot about is, is my own practice with astrology. I think I think about it in critical ways. I mean, I find it to be fascinating and, you know, I teach about it and, um, I've been studying it for six or seven years now, but at the same time, I feel like most things in life that, you know, everything should be thought of critically and, um, we should be questioning things and thinking about, you know, what the purpose of this is and, and what it's doing and what it isn't doing. Um, so I'm curious particularly about your evolution in that respect, uh, yeah. sort of like how to fit into something when you think critically about it, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is, you know, I think, I think we'll end up talking about metamodernism quite a bit and this will support that. Cause that question is exactly what I feel metamodernism walks towards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just a little history. So, I mean, I was in my last year of 
my degree, I have a cultural anthropology, just BA, where I focus on food and medical anthropology, um, focused mostly on native diets. And so anyway, my last year of college, I ran into this old hippie kind of white woman who needed help moving her house to Hawaii. And the second day I'm sitting there chain smoking cigarettes with her bawling in her living room being like, what are you doing to me? And she's giving me a human design reading. Uh-huh. And, um, her name was Jakruti. And she ended up becoming a mentor of mine until she passed away last August. Um, and if you know human design speak, she's a, she's a writing across of Sphinx, a one four and a manifester. And um, she completely changed my life, initiated me into this system. You know, this human design, when I was getting into it, because at the time I was very much in a critical space. I was atheistic. I was like in this space. I'd gone from being very spiritual to sort of atheistic and rational, objective, materialist kind of thing. Um, And then this happened and I was just drawn to it. I was like, okay, there's something here. Like that was so powerful to receive a reading. Like I was definitely something happened for me. Um, so I worked with her just as like a mentee mentor relationship, just as friends, as an elder um, for, for many years. And then I finally did training. She pushed me into doing some of the analyst training. I was like, I don't want to pay for this weird thing that nobody <laughs> cares about and is super niche and yeah. like, why? Um, and then little did I know that right as I was like, not even done with it yet, I started showing up online and it started blowing up. Right. So human design and astrology, I would say in the last like five years have just, Oh yeah. Like where did I read somewhere? Astrology is like a multi-billion dollar industry now. Yeah. Um, which is wild. Yeah. So, yeah. So my experience with it was like it being a niche thing that I just did because I enjoyed it, but um, didn't think it had any viability in my life or, or like as far as career wise or just supporting people with, it was just something fun to do. Mm-hmm. And then I started getting into the weeds of it and being critical about it all the way. You know, I, I decided early on that I am not a believer in it. Like I'm not, a like, I don't believe the origin story. I don't believe the cosmology. Um, what is, can you talk a little bit about the origin story? <laughs> well, the origin story, you know, it's like do 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 respect. I think Ra Ruhu, um, what's his actual name? Can't even remember it right now. But he had a download, so to speak, right? He had a period of time where he received a lot of information in like 1987, and he went on to sort of build out this system. Received a lot about this intermixing of systems between I Ching, astrology, Kabbalah the um, chakra system and sort of weaving those together. And he didn't get a complete 100% picture. He went on to develop human design and all the things that came from it, mm-hmm. from that. But at the end of the day, the dude, you know, like I can get, get fully rational about it. It's like the dude probably had like a manic episode or did some drugs and had a manic episode and had like a huge download of universal patterns and different things and seeing the ways they connect. And he did catch something. He did capture some sort of pattern, archetypal pattern, and working with the I Ching in a new way, in a self-sustaining logic that is powerful, right? It connects all of these archetypal, you know, realities and things together. Um, And it's really robust in that way. So we received that from him. It's definitely in a conglomeration of many things. I think the I Ching is the most powerful aspect underneath it. 
um, as far as like the archetypal underpinning of it. And yeah, so that's, that was kind of like the history of it. And for me, I just, his cosmology is that it's coming from neutrino subatomic particles. And we've got these personality and design crystals that are filtering it. It gets, it gets really sci-fi pretty quick. Um, and to me, that story never interested me. That's not what I was excited about because I've read a lot of good sci-fi and I always tell people who are conspiracy theorists or ancient alien aficionados, I'm like, y'all just need to read some good sci-fi. Yeah. That's really what, that's what your hearts are wanting is that you just <laughs> want to get lost in good story. Right. Um, so, I'd, you know, I, I was always just like, yeah, but there's something here still, you know, I would have respected more if you just said he made it up and it still was powerful, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but the mystical is mystical. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned something about believing in it versus not. And this is something I talk about all the time, uh, because, of course, so many people who are like critical of these sorts of systems will say, I think, especially with astrology, because I think it's more sort of well known that what we're talking about are like planets and constellations, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. affecting or influencing us. And people will say, I don't believe that. Um, And it's really interesting because I also don't believe that. Like, I don't believe in astrology. Um, and I think that's sort of hard for people to wrap their minds around. So I'd love to hear how you approach that. What does it mean to sort of use a system or learn from it, but not believe in it? Yeah, I think I'm just so thankful for, I got kind of introduced to Jungian thought and archetypal thought through King Warrior Magician Lover back in like 2017. Love it. <laughs> into, the men, into men's work and yeah. Um, it just kind of got associated with that world and really just dug in this young in life. One of the, one of the best podcasts, love it today. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when I started to enter into that and started studying there, it just, it became very clear that so many of our spiritual systems are archetypal systems, these new age systems, these ways of thought, they're not about an objective reality as much as they're an, ar- an archetypal subjective reality. And the thing that drives me nuts is that our, many people's inability to hold the complexity of a situation like that, just sort of falling into a modernist way of thinking, which is all about there's one truth, there's some objective truth. And if I can't find a one truth, then it's not true, right? Or if I can't prove it, it's not true. And for me, the second, because I had so many doubts about human design, I was like, what is this? This is weird. Like, And I was like, oh, it's it's an archetypal system. Right. It is describing and formulating and connecting and codifying archetypes. Mm. And for me, that's how I've always approached it. And there's even a time where I was afraid to say, like, I don't believe it, because if I didn't believe it, then people are like, well, what are you doing? Why are you even here? You know, right. and same with astrology is I've always been drawn to horoscope and started studying Western astrology because that's actually not my where I've come from. Mm-hmm. You know, I was here first before I started getting into um, Western astrology more. And to me, they're, they're archetypal. They speak to something within us. They speak to passages of time and connection to the cosmos in a way that sort of the, you know, Western colonial modern existence does not have any awareness of any longer moon cycles, cycles of the stars, all those things. And Lawrence, um, Hillman, who's an archetypal astrologer, who again is like, I'm not, he's like, deep in this. This is work, got a freaking like, I think PhD in it or something. Right. 
he's like, no, it's not about believing it. It's about this is the story of the turning of time. It's not about it's not astronomy, which is the objective mapping out and science and math of the movement of the planets and the stars. It's the story of it. What does it mean? It's the subjective interpretation. And for me, human design is like a very complicated system. Not that astrology can't get very complicated, very complicated system that has an underlying logic of connection between archetypal concepts. And those connections are what make it so potent, make mm-hmm. it so powerful, you know? Yeah. So it's all archetypal and it's powerful because our psyches are archetypal because our subjective lens in which we experience everything. Like, I don't know if I believe in objectivity anymore. I believe in inner subjectivity that like yeah. all we can do is say, Hey, all of us agree that we are experiencing something similar. Right. Yeah. That's pretty much the, you know, kind of the end of most of our experience in our psyches and our movements of our soul and our growth. Those are archetypally bound fundamentally. So that's how I see it. And I think it's just as powerful and even more powerful to use our will to meaning to sub, to ex- understand our subjective experience, like to willfully engage with our subjective experience as opposed to trying to nullify it and make it all objective. For sure. Right. I think there's sort of like a throwing the baby out with the bathwater thing uh, mm-hmm. that happens yeah. here. Because <laughs> I, I mean, and of course... And I struggle with it. I still struggle with it about like how to find myself within these practices in a way that feels good to me, especially in the context of so many people practicing in in ways that don't, Um, you know, I kind of constantly find like hear myself saying like, yeah, I'm an astrologer, but it's not like what you think or like not that kind Mm -hmm. of astrologer or um, so I want to talk a little bit about this concept of archetypal systems and stories and Um, from your perspective sort of here like how can we or how have you or how do you teach about using this sort of system in a beneficial way versus what are the ways that mm, this system is used that make you uncomfortable or that you feel are sort of unproductive (laughs) well you know one thing is just like through my experience of teaching human design and working with folks like I'm, I'm always inviting them to especially with human design the whole point which gets a little interesting starts showing up interesting for folks but the whole point is like to follow your own authority to come into your own experience and follow your own body and so i always pull people into that i'm always like what is it doing for you how is it showing up like don't just take it don't give your authority over to a reader don't give your authority over to a system take in the information and how does it land what is it what does it feel like quite literally like let's get in your body and like do you start freaking out and tensing up and being, oh my God, I'm a horrible person, all these things, or, you know, I got Mars somewhere that I probably shouldn't have it. And, you know, just like all these things start showing up yeah. and just be like, let's work with that. That's psyche speaking to us. Right. And that's what the power of archetypes is. How do we respond to it? It's just like dream interpretation, right? Where it's like, it's not about, you know, you can pull out your book of symbols and be like, oh, I had a snake in my dream. And so it means this, or you can say like, what was there for me? What was my experience of it? And so I tried to call people into that. And when teaching the cosmology of human design, we would constantly be like, you don't have to take this. Like, please think about it. Please consider whether this fits into a larger web of story about you and your life, what gives you context. And so that's the kind of the way that I like try to get people to engage with it, which is really actually kind of hard to do. Um, Because a lot of people are without story. They're without myth. They don't, 
have a cosmology that tells them who they are, why they're here. And so when they start to engage with something that tells them who they are, why they're here, the purpose, all those things, they go, oh, oh my God, thank you, thank you, thank you. I've been looking for this my whole life, quite literally. Right. Um, and the danger of that is it pulls wool over people's eyes. It um, creates a typology. They become one thing. They, they reduce their com- the complexity of their inner worlds, their inner landscapes. They um, use excuses for their behavior and others' behavior. They don't actually deepen into conversation and communication. They explain com- their experience as opposed to engaging with it. And that happens all over the place. And that's why human design in particular, because it's such a powerfully logical system and everything kind of has a reason it is there, there's a lot of dogma that starts to show up. There's a lot of like, oh, well, you're not following the original teachings. Oh, you're not following this specific way of thinking about it. Oh, you know, oh, it's just this gate or, oh, it's just because I have right arrows or, oh, it's just one of these things instead of being like, it could be that. But how does that interpretation support the understanding of yourself versus any other interpretation of it's a part from IFS Mm -hmm. maternal family systems it's a trauma response working with like dorsal vagal theory and polyvagal theory you know like all of them are ways that we engage with our internal worlds so I see a lot of dogma I see a lot of limiting behavior I see a lot of working with the world in a mechanical way saying like this x plus z equals y or whatever Mm, you know right and it's just it's always more complex than that it's always like our experiences our psyches there's no system on the planet that i think can actually contain all of it there's ones that can allude to it and i think that that's the same thing with like the conspiracy theory thing is what i always say is like need to read some good sci-fi and it's always more complicated than what you expect if you think you have it figured out expect you know that's the that's the red flag right there that yeah. the world and our experience is much more complex yeah. yeah yeah i mean and it's also like i think one of the major problems which isn't you know i don't think it means we can't do it but i do think about some of these tools like just archi- thinking archetypally subjectively human design astrology you know like psychedelics all of these things that originated in very different contexts than the one that we find ourselves in now which is mechanistic and objective and um uh, do you feel like that's part of the problem sometimes that like we have this lens that we exist in in this world view and we're tr- and what we often do without thinking is taking these systems that are really you know kind of antithetical to that and trying to fit them into the context that we are familiar with yeah and i I, yeah and this is um and it's so hard to talk about this because there's a lot of shadow along with this but you know with the metamodern thinking something very similar is sort of integral theory like ken wilber's work and Mm -hmm. he talks about these different stages of development of consciousness right and it's really clear to me that when people approach these systems, wherever they are in their, in their stage of consciousness. And again, using that immediately puts it on this like linear trajectory where, Oh, I have a higher stage of consciousness. (laughs) My ego feels full and you know, all these things. So it's like, it's really hard to use this, but there is this sort of truth that all of us are coming from our own experiences. We're all coming from our own 
cultural conditioning about how we interpret the world, our own lenses, our own symbolic lenses, all of those things. And why I think a linear progression isn't capture the complexity of it. Um, there's some truth that when people come to it and they're carrying the Western colonial modern project of reductionism and that there's this one truth that gets conflated with the excitement of their subjective experience and it becomes fundamental truth. And right. then they're deep in and they're going, you know, just plant medicine is going to raise the consciousness of the planet. And I encountered God there and I'm like, cool, great. Definitely not the only way to do that. Definitely not the only experience in which people have that feeling. And maybe you won't save the planet by taking ayahuasca, um, especially in a weird tourist economy thing yeah. that's happening with it, which I don't, I don't we don't need to go into that. But, <laughs> but we um, could, I agree. And I've talked about it a lot. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's where people are and when they're coming to it. And that's where I feel as a practitioner, it's so, there's times I work with people and I'm like, I can't control their experience. I can just try to give them as much room as possible to hold their experience in and to give them as many tools as possible to expand the understanding of their experience. And at the end of the day, they're still limited by the subjective lenses in which they, they've, they've come from, that we all are bound to, we can't escape, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, 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 that's where it gets out of hand a little bit for me, you know? Um, So, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious about how you, um, when and how, or if it just started this way for you sort of integrated, integrated this concept of story and mythology, because I feel like I sort of intuitively landed there as a way to sort of work against or, or try to prevent the sort of more mechanistic identitarian ways of approaching these things. Um, like it was totally mind blowing for me, you know, growing up, like my familiarity with astrology was sun, so sun, uh, sun sign horoscopes in newspapers, which, you know, was fun maybe, (laughs) but like very simplistic and not very interesting. I had no idea that, you know, not only is the system itself far more complex than that, but that all of these qualities or characteristics or archetypes that were being spoke about originated from mythology. Um, mm-hmm. Like I try to just like that in and of itself, I feel like just telling people that about, the, about it um, makes so much more sense. It's not these random groupings of characteristics that like someone just decided exist there. Um, but that those characteristics exist within the story itself. And, um, I know you talk about myth a lot. So instead of me telling you why mythology is awesome, I want to talk to you about like, what role do you feel like that has in the practice and how do you feel like the focus on story and mythology can kind of help to reduce some of our tendency to, um, take these things on in more sort of like objective Mm. black and white ways yeah this is such a this is such a difficult concept uh, specifically for for my experience because growing up mixed indigenous you know i'm leaping apache on my dad's side spanish i have a scottish clan duncan you know i got you know i'm a mixed individual which is the future of of people frankly Mm -hmm. Uh, but holding multiple realities multiple ways of looking at the world and not seeing how they can integrate at all and often feeling very stuck with that partially because both of them assert 
that they carry objective truth mm. and or they carry truth uh, in some in some way and they both work with co- complexity and different viewpoints differently um so I'm, I'm naming that because to me when when i started to work with myth and started to think about myth and meta narratives and story um, and this understanding that we are all intersubjective and we have these subjective lenses in which we encounter the world through our culture and um, <clears throat> all those things, it just became clear that like the actual way that we organize ourselves is not objective logic and truth, right? We try to do that, but even in the sciences, and I go back to my like science and technology studies in my anthro department, you know, back in 2010 or something, and just being like, even science is a story. Even all in the enlightenment is a story. It's a myth. Totally. Yeah. And, and it's so hard. And the problem I have is most people conflate myth with something that's untrue. Right. Or conflate myth with something that's kind of dumb and you shouldn't entertain myths or something. That's literally like you look at the dictionary definition of a myth and it's just like something that is false, you know, like, yeah. and for me, it just became that if we are all living stories, we cannot escape story. That's not the point. The point is not to somehow objectively rise above and become science gods that never existed in a story and we just exist in a rational objective universe, but to live into a story of our own choosing, right? A story that we engage with. And for me, just acknowledging that we can't escape our stories, then we have to start working with them. What, what materials do we have to start working with them? And that's where myth and especially astrology and human design for the modern human, especially folks who are come from the Western colonial world, they don't have, have stories. They don't have cosmologies about why they're there. They're like, there's a big bang. You deconstructed your faith. You're just trying to make, have a, you know, maybe the American dream or an individualist sort of story but there's no stories that root you into meaning, into this sense of, I know who I am. I know why I'm here. And that is the meaning crisis. And the meaning crisis underpins the psychological crisis and it underpins the climate crisis, you know? And so for me, myth is something we must directly encounter and work with and willfully choose to engage with. Because if we don't, we're given those stories. We're given stories that might work for some of us and don't work for the vast majority of us. Yeah. I don't know if that kind of answered where you're going. Yeah. No, for sure. I I mean, I agree. And I think not only, I mean, I always say, like, we're telling a story, whether we're aware aware of it or not, you know, (laughs) like we can either become conscious um, and aware of it and in control of it in a way, or let it do whatever it wants to do without our input, um, or agency. And yeah, I think one of the, you know, not only do we just take on stories, I think one thing that I started to realize and one mm, inspiration for the podcast was recognizing how ashamed I was of being a millennial and being a part of this generation. Mm -hmm. And anytime, I mean, for years, like when anyone you know, I just tried to act older and I just tried to hope that nobody would ask me how old I was or bring up millennial or, um, and I really defined myself in that sense against the narrative that I was given. Um, and for a while that felt empowering, but then I realized like it wasn't 
moving anywhere, right? Like we either take stories on that people give us or we identify ourselves by rejecting the story, but don't write a new one. So it's just this like, no kind of a thing. Um, and yeah, I, I know you sort of, I want to talk about indigenous futures and, and myth mending and metamodernism. And I don't really know how to like succinctly bring any of that up, but, um, I would maybe like give people a window. I know you do these, um, myth mending, it's either a session or course, I'm not sure. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, like if you could give us a window into what is it like to identify stories, identify, you know, the stories that we're rejecting and, like how do, what does it mean to redefine them or rewrite them? Um, what does that look like? Yeah. I think what I found is that to like on this upper level to reclaim our stories and start engaging willfully with this will to meaning with myth and story that's like in my head, I have like in a, like a way that I'm like, yeah, that's a cool thing. And everybody should do that. But the second you start doing that, everything comes up the way we were raised, um, our development as adults, whether we like initiated adults, whether we feel disconnected from the mother and the father and have stepped in sort of developed an ego that's healthy and are competent in the world as mm-hmm. it is, even though it's becoming more and more difficult to be. Um, and so I just found that when you try to do that, it's not just like, yeah, rethink your myth. And like, here you <laughs> go. It's like, oh, actually now comes the inner work. Now comes yeah. all of the work of reclaiming who you are and reconnecting to an authentic aspect of yourself that you were born with, that I truly believe that all of us are gifted with gold, I call it, in my sort of meta-myth of the work that I do. And I do want to name that um, myth-mending is a term that I've used, and actually I came into contact with somebody who has copyrighted that, this brilliant person called Krista Arias, who's mm-hmm. very excited to like talk to and hopefully... Um, like interview at some point, but she has amazing work. So I'm going to stop using that term because okay, has a lifetime of work that has gone into that term. So I'm in the midst of sort of trying to shift and, and find some new language. It's a great term. I have to say, I was thinking it about it. It's awesome. <laughs> it's really good. And the work she does, I'm like mind blown. She went to Pacifica. I'm just like shouting her out now. Cause yeah, she's yeah. like, she needs some more. She's, yeah. she's brilliant. Um, so yeah. So for me, when I started doing that work, with folks one-on-one, I found, you know, I started them through a process of like, okay, reconnecting to authenticity, reconnecting to our goals, to those things that we were born with, and then confronting all the things that keep us from stepping into that. And that's Mm -hmm. a lifetime of work to do that, you know? And from there, how do you support that process? Because there's a very individualist mindset in the personal development world where it's like, I just got to connect to my authenticity. Fuck you all. Here's my boundaries. I'm not going to do that. You know, like they are toxic behavior. I'm going to be me. I'm going to do my thing. And it's like, no, we're bound continuously interwoven together with not just other people, but our landscapes. And we really have to learn how to engage with that. So how do we interweave a context, a mythic pantheon, a personal mythos that allows us to understand who we are in our complexity and so it's about finding some of your authenticity, finding all these parts and different things that show up, different archetypes that show up and are causing trouble in your life or wanting to be liberated and expressed in your life. And then how do you build a story that holds them all? And then how do you walk that story? How do you sing that story? Right. And it's not a, we go through a process and then you're good and off you mm-hmm. go. It's like a story you're building that actually allows you to be initiated as a psychological adult. 
And I would say the vast majority of us are not initiated adults. We don't feel comfortable in our skin. We don't know who we are and where we come from and what we're here to do. We haven't been held by a community that mirrors that back to us and holds us in that. So this, this work with, you know, mending our myths is um, about just beginning some of that process. And for me, it's vital because we are in, an, we are in an individualist time. We're not going away from that. We, the way forward is the individual it's the individual choices. And we are also in a time of, we don't have many myths or stories or meta narratives that fulfill us. So to me, this is a beautiful time for people to engage with their own and create their own personal myth based on the many complex experiences of their lives, especially for folks who have been affected by immigration, colonization, genocide, diaspora, because they've been so removed from some of their stories. So reclaiming them through ancestral work, um, reintegrating them in a modern context, and then building new myths that might be these little seeds for the future, hmm. right? That maybe a hundred years from now, there's many people living a story similar, you yeah. know? Can you give an example? I'm, uh, I'm sure there are many, but, um, of one of the stories in your own life that you've sort of worked with or mended or rewrote in this way. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, a really easy one for me is, oh, there's a couple. <laughs> um, reclaiming masculinity mm. was a powerful myth to work with, with mm. a powerful story to work with. Um, I think that it's a very common experience of men that they don't know what it means to be a man or they have a bunch of weird old school Marlboro man vibes about what being a man is about. Um, and there's also a softening that isn't allowed for men. So either men really lean into that softening and that sort of potentially nice guy behavior or they lean into the opposite. And there aren't these stories that can capture the complexity of being a man men are pigeonholed constantly about, um, you know, I, I, I speak often mostly with friends and with my own groups of like, you know, that men don't often get to be the victim in the world sometimes. And men are the first ones sent to war. Men's bodies are often not their own. Um, they're often the States or their families or their communities, but they're not their own. Mm. Um, men's queerness is not, safe or it's completely alien or completely in one space and it has no place for fluidity or changingness or shifting right mm -hmm. and um so in working with all of those just helped me claim manhood not in a way of like i'm lost but actually in this way that's deeply generative of like oh i actually know what it means to be a man like i actually know what it means to walk in the world and to hold space in a different way. Um, I know what it means to own my attraction and own my sensuality and those things and really learning to engage with that. And so for me, part of that was actually getting whole lived generative um, stories and myths about men and understanding the masculine archetypes was vital for me. Yeah. You know, just having these stones that aren't just little, you know, these foundations that aren't just little like euphemisms about what it means to be a man, you yeah. know, because often for many of us, none of those work 
for a lot of men. They just reject them. They're going like, that doesn't work now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, working with those stories and then also really can working with stories of like, what does it mean to be a modern man in this age of, you know, the me too movements and wars and, and all of these things that the masculine patriarchy has sort of like enacted. Yeah. How do we engage with that without either getting angry at feminists who are constantly talking about it or getting, you know, like how do we actually engage with that in a true, in a true way? Yeah. So yeah, that, that to me was a big part of the mythic work. It's a big part of reclaiming stories, finding stories, um, understanding development through stories, just having, having a roadmap, even a mythic roadmap in particular, mm-hmm. that gave me the space to, to be who I am, but to still follow a trajectory, you know, Iron John, thank, thank you, Robert Bly, you know, rest in yeah. peace up there because yeah. that is so needed, especially for the modern world. Yeah. I wanted to jump back to something you said about the future and individuals um, and sort of unpack that a little bit and what you meant by that, because I think, you know, both of us talk a lot about community and sort of like ecological webs. And I think telling stories about community and about collectives. So, um, and I know you've done men's work in groups as well. And I, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on what you meant by that sort of individualism um, and like what the myth is around that for you as well. Well, yeah, the way, the way that I kind of see it is um, again, it's almost like a, I haven't, I, I, and I'd love to know if there's more thought on this, but the way that I've seen it is that we have, we have left some of our original communal contexts. Like mm-hmm. we are not going to be able to go back. I am, just I'm not a primitivist I'm not a romanticizing indigenous ways um I am not a like a like maybe I'm a communalist but you know it's just <laughs> like I really have a disdain for people walking away from the situation that we are in mm-hmm. and wanting it to be simpler and old times and um primitivist and um yeah there's like you know, there's some, anyway, I'm getting a little, it's like, there's some people who are like anti-civilization. There's yeah. some things I'm like, hey, there's some cool stuff going on there. But there's also part of me that's like, unless we literally collapse, which I don't desire. Right. We're we can't going go back. There. Yeah, no, I, and, I'm going to interrupt you because I feel super similarly. I mean, of course, like there's so many things from the past that are useful and helpful and potentially imperative but I agree and when you think about it as far as story and narrative like I know things aren't linear but we can't just be like oh okay we've come this far in this book let's just like stop rip out all the pages go backwards and like write a new story like we have this the story that we're writing is continuing on the path of where we already are which is yes like an individualistic civilized society unfortunately yeah and that's and that's where you know i get i get you know because i dabbled in communism and socialism and you know socialism we have conversation about but you know when i was younger and and to me it's just like what can we actually get a little bit grounded and pragmatic with like what is actually going to happen Mm. this is to me like the, the fundamental of a futurist thinking it's like it's not just about utopian thinking it's about like how can we look 5, 10, 12, you know, and, and continue years ahead as opposed to being like, wouldn't it be great in 300 years? There's a, there's a value to that because um, it plants possibility. But I, yeah, I just have this, 
this frustration of like, no, it's, it's just going to get more complex. It's not going to fall apart. People see complexity as chaos and thus chaos means end times. And I'm like, no, complexity just means complexity and proliferation of biodiversity in thought and consciousness and all these things, even if there's a less biodiversity on the planet mm-hmm. because of um, the Anthropocene. So yeah, wait, what was the original question? <laughs> um, like, like, about like, how you see the sort of the future of the individual, I guess was, yeah. Yeah. So for me, it's like, we came from communal, cultural, cosmological contexts that were well, that were planted in a landscape. So that when I woke up in the morning and I looked out at the Eastern mountains, the Western mountains, where the sun and the stars were, I knew who I was. I knew the names of everything around me. I had a, a story for every single thing around me. And in that story was a relationship. And in that relationship, I knew who I was. I knew where I walked. I knew what my duties were, what my responsibilities were. Mm -hmm. That has been stripped. We no longer have those contexts. Many of us, you know, I I feel blessed to have small amounts of those contexts still intact. But we come from indigenous existences in which complex cosmological and ecological sciences and technologies and things were holding us right? That they spoke to our soul as much as they spoke to how we engaged with our landscapes. We've been stripped of that. The Western Colonial Project has been successful in many ways. We are globalized. We are switching between many cultures and new emerging cultures are happening on the planet all over. There's only one actor in every single one of these new cultures. It's the individual. And America loved it. They're all about the neoliberal individual, you know, just went way into that for some reason. So to me, we can't turn back, right? We can't suddenly fuse because to me, an individual consciousness has a lot of breadth, right? There is, you are no longer confined by one cosmology. All of a sudden you're a moat as an individual that is surrounded by hundreds of cosmologies, many stories, many possibilities of truth and connection and what we even, how we interpret what we feel in our body, you know? So we can't go back from that. To go back from that is a regression that actually causes us all the problems that we have now, the political parties are regressions into stories and communities that we feel safer in instead of being like an individual that says, actually, I have to be responsible for a choice that I make. Right. Right. You know, so to me, we can't go back. We are individuals. We can only willfully engage with their subjective experience and choose community. Mm -hmm. So it's like, we came from community. Now we're individuals. And now we can only choose like inter sovereignty in some way. So yeah, that's kind of like my thinking on some of that. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting to sort of like draw comparisons between the work that uh we do individually and the work that we think about on a collective scale. Like there's, you know, we're going to therapy and like learning that we're like valid and not broken and like, you know, and yet I feel like we're very you know, those of us that are thinking in this way, I think have a tendency to be extremely critical of where we are, which I think in some ways can be productive and practical. But like, I think I really, you know, I was confronted by traveling around the world this past year and seeing how other people think about America, like what other cultures think about America and seeing how I was really wrong about my assumptions. Like I really assumed that most of the world hated America and felt the way I felt about it. Um, And yet there were multiple different 
countries that I was in that really glamorized and glorified America. And Georgia was a particular example. This is a country that like desperately wants to be a part of the West, like desperately move away from Russia and um, really sees America as a success story and remembers in a really potent way what it's like to not be free, what it's like to be occupied, what it's like to be at war in a way that like we don't. Um, like we have this like kind of historical amnesia, I think in many ways and take a lot of things for granted, which of course isn't to say that there aren't problems and things that need to be corrected. But similarly to the way that I would approach my personal psychology, like to say it's fucked up and it's broken and it sucks and there's nothing we can do about it. Like, why would I approach the sort of collective that I'm a part of in that same way? You know, like, how is it really going to move us forward? Uh, yeah, I love that so much on it. Like this is, this is complexity. Yeah. Right. That's what, that's when you're speaking, that's what you're talking to is that our inner landscapes and our inner ecologies are just as complex as our outer ones. And they do elude us. There is not, not one person. I don't think, you know, I don't trust one person who's like, yeah, I got it all figured out. It's either yeah. like, Oh no, you just don't have, don't know that you don't know. Or yeah, there's some yeah. major megalomania going on. So, Right. So what you're speaking to is is so dear to my heart. And this is where I think astrology and human design, when when studied with this will to meaning, this will to engage with their subjective, it actually allows us to hold complexity, not only inside of ourselves, but outside of ourselves. And I just took a course with Lawrence Hillman called um, the polypoetic psyche. And how that supports an emerging world, emerging complexity of the world. Mm-hmm. That when we can start to see ourself as not a singular self, but as many selves um, that are all acting like he's even, he's like, there's no self period. He's like yeah. harsh. On that. He's like the self mm-hmm. is I, you know, I think about IFS and there's very strong emphasis on self of the capital S. He's like, no, we are only many actors within. And when we start to engage with ourselves that way, when we say, oh, I have my, my strategist or strategizer online, which is, you know, like Saturn or something, right? He uses the 10 planets as the inner, as a model for the polypoetic psyche. Um, then all of a sudden you're going, oh yeah, I'm not one thing. And the world is not one thing. It's many things, many things connected, constantly playing who's in front, who's behind, what's going on. And when you hold that perspective, one, it's, scary at first it's like oh my god well who am i then right this question of who i am but then to expand it in this complexification of who we are this is where i think engaging earnestly with astrology and human design and seeing these archetypal connections you know like when i think of a powerful astrologer who and i don't know anything about all the a lot of this stuff but like they're putting signs houses planets and trines and oppositions and everything's happening and you're doing all that you are building up the muscle to engage with archetypal complexity, right? You're building up this muscle to say, I know what it means when there's six archetypes interacting all at once. And there's a story that shows up from it. And you become a myth maker in that, right? You're literally creating story. And that act to me is one of the most important things we can do at this time, because the only way to configure complexity, especially on a global scale is with a universal language like archetypes, which all of us have a shared inherent relationship to, even if they go by many different names, 
And then to see the complexity of the situation, to have many stories or to create stories that configure that complexity. So I talk about archetypal systems as complexity playgrounds. Mm. They're places we can play and understand. And of course, they make sense to us because at some point they reflect an inner complexity and an outer complexity. So yeah, they're, they're vital in my mind, especially in a world that doesn't have stories that do that well. Yeah, this is a very like Mars going retrograde in Gemini conversation about the complexity of the self. Um, Yeah, I, I, you know, I think the other thing, too, that this does when we think about ourselves as a collection of stories or a collection of archetypes sort of arranged in a unique way for each of us. Like what also ends up happening is that you realize that everyone else is composed of those same stories and those same archetypes just you know, in different ratios and proportions and and different orders. And so in this interesting way, by studying these complex systems, which talk to us about ourselves and about who we are, or, you know, who we've been or who we can become or who we're becoming, we also recognize like there's an um, sort of like built in way in which that connects us to other people as well. Totally. When you, when you realize that you have a really strong, like I have a, I have a really strong Leo and a really strong um, Gemini, right? Like I have multiple planets. I have a, yeah, Venus, Mars. I'm like embarrassed to say it. Venus, Mars, moon and Jupiter conjunct in Leo. Um, I am and, a Leo, so it's fine. I'm, I'm into it. <laughs> I, I have, that is on the front. That's the front stage often. Yeah. My, you know, Mercury and Sun and Gemini, that's, that's on the front stage, as, as Lawrence Hillman says, like, it's the one who's running the play. Mm. But when you can see that in yourself, you start to see other people and you go, oh, you're frustrated about something, or you're triggered about something, and, or there's a relationship dynamic that's happening that's difficult. You suddenly have a moment of, oh, that's not them as a whole complex being, that's one part of them that is taking the front stage and it has a good reason for being there. How can you engage that piece of them, that part of their psyche as lovingly as possible? Or maybe sometimes, you know, maybe in like a Martian situation, be like, hey, okay, this is your, this is a lot here. So we're going to sit with it um, and, and then pull out more, right? And to yeah. see them as a multiple, as and to have that reflected also actually allows us to be seen because we are multiple. And that's where typology and categorization um, of all of these different psychological modalities and systems and spiritual systems, they can become dangerous because they can limit us and not allow us to be seen. Um, But yeah, there's, there's some beautiful compassion that comes out of that of like, Oh yeah, it's your, yeah, your Venus is, is here. And it's, this is what it's doing. So, yeah. Yeah. I, how do you sort of help guide people? Like I have a lot of um, sympathy for people who learn about these things or or want to think about themselves in complex terms and feel relatively ungrounded by that prospect, right? Like clearly with the rise of these, you know, political identitarian movements, I also think the rise of human design and astrology is like you said, we're trying so desperately to figure out who we are. And, um, you know, I think I was raised in a way, my dad is gay, um, was married to my mom, sort of always was thought he was bisexual and then later decided, no, actually I'm just gay. Uh, and 
he was extremely instrumental in helping me think about identity, I think, in ways that were extremely productive and nourishing because I he was so embracing of his own complexity and his own evolution and how things change. And I've had him on the podcast a couple of times and he said something about how like identity should be like an outfit. Like it's something you kind of try on for a while and feel into. And then maybe later down the road, you want to like change it a bit. Um, but in a world where we are, we don't have belonging, where we don't have these stories all around us, where we aren't connected how would you like guide or help people in embracing their own complexity or their own, um, yeah, their, their, yeah, their own complexity, I'll just say, uh, in a way that like, doesn't freak them out or doesn't make them feel like, well, I don't know where to land or like, I don't know who I am. So I can't really go there. It it's the, that specific question is it's complicated. Yeah. But the real answer here in my mind is it's grief. It's grief about our lost belonging to earth, to our ecologies, to our communities. That is the key in my mind. And that's one of the first things to do in, in sort of this mythic work, mending our myths is a group container that I have. It's like you pull the stuff up and underneath all of it, all of it, who am I? What am I here for? What is it going on? All the, all this stuff, all the questioning, oh, all the different ideas, all the different systems that are trying to help you sort that out, all the work you do, all the going to all the therapy, all the things. Underneath all of that is the grief of disconnection, is the absolute grief of that when you walk out in the morning, you don't know the plant that's that's across from you. You don't have relationships. You're not embedded in a community that creates belonging. And belonging is the foundation of worth. So if we don't have belonging, we can't feel even worthy in our inner work. We can't feel that we are doing anything well or right, or it should be more. I should go have more understanding of my polypoetic psyche. And, you know, like all of those things, all those questions to me can't be engaged unless we really engage with the grief of things have been taken from us, that we have lost things, whether by our, our ancestors' hands or by other people's hands, we do not have that shared belonging to earth any longer. And that's why animist sensibilities are vital for the future, not as a primitivist idea that we go back to because the modern world is too hectic and too crazy. It's like, yeah. no, they are the foundation of configuring that complexity of walking into the future in a good way because we walk with belonging going, I know who the fuck I am. I'm this landscape. Right. I'm these people. And in the mixed complex world, it's really hard to name that, you know, and it's getting, it's going to get more difficult. So we better come up with the tools to do that now. So yeah, to me, that question of that, that sort of anxiety or that, like, how do I, where's, where do I start with this? Like, how do I get in? It's like, you start with the grief. And when people actually start to tap into that grief, because it starts in their individual story and then it goes to their family story and then it goes to their ancestry and then it goes to the collective and then it goes to the more than human. You know, yeah. it just expands and expands and expands the grief and grief of ages of dominion that yeah. have really fucked us up and created so much wonder and beauty and technology and all of those things, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'd, I want to talk about like your connection to the sort of non-human animate world. Um, I feel like our words for these things, nature and wilderness and all of these things, like always rub me the wrong way. Um, but because I feel like 
I agree. And I think my like initiation six years ago, going through my Saturn return, as well as other like horrific transits, um, like my initiation was grief. Like that was my psychedelic experience in many ways. Um, and is ongoing, of course. Uh, but I feel like, you know, the natural world played a really, really vital role in keeping me grounded and in a sense of belonging during a very tumultuous, like ungrounded time. Um, and I know you've, you've talked about similar things and had similar experiences. I know you just went on, did a fast, um, for a little while. So I wanted to sort of talk about your relationship to the natural world in that sense and how that relationship informs, um, grounds or yeah, is just a part of what we're speaking about as far as identity and figuring out who we are. Yeah. You know, I feel really thankful. Um, you know, my lineage is reconnected. My father reconnected. I didn't get a tribal identity card till I was 12 after mm -hmm. my dad's work. Um, I was raised in sort of a pan indigenous pan Indian, which is like not a term, at least in indigenous communities is like a term people like, but that's what I was raised, was raised in Lakota ways. I was raised in the American church. And I'm naming that because I did have this beautiful foundation of engaging with the natural world as, um, and I put air quotes there because yeah. I also <laughs> go on wild or just like things I use when I don't want to explain an entire history concept. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, you know, so there, there was like, I'm so thankful for my father's work just to, to maintain some of those connections. And for me, it's always felt that there is, and until more recently, when I had the ideas and the sort of philosophies and, you know, ways to understand that, but there was this sort of truth speaking and prayer and being with the land and having that reflect to me parts of who I am that was inherent that I grew up in that I'm really thankful for. But it wasn't until I was much older because I took it for granted, of course, as mm -hmm. I was like much more interested in World Warcraft and building yeah. computers. Um, now I'm happy I've done both. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> But more recently, it's really been about like my just this question of like, there is more here than a primitivist, animist, traditional way of being. There's more here. And so it was my study of like Greg Gehette, who does native science, David Abram, of course, spelled the sensuous, like so good. <laughs> that was what gave me a philosophical way to engage this idea of a phenomenological connection with land. And in fact, that that's informed everything that makes us human. Yeah. It's informed our language. And yeah, so that whole, his book to me is like brilliant, not because he came up with something brilliant, but because he's pointed to something for my experience right? that, that I've known my whole life Yeah, uh, that I didn't have ways to explain. And Greg Cajete's work is also talking about how do we engage with science, like actual science, like, technology complexity from an animist perspective that uses a metaphoric mind to in, to hold that uses story and song and dance in the body as vessels for technology and culture as opposed to writing right yeah and so when i started working with that to me the natural world became the only way that i see that we can actually truly understand ourselves that when we build relationship with place, we find ourselves in that relationship. When we build relationship with landscape. And I think my biggest fear is that the globalized world of us moving around everywhere um, will never allow us to root in somewhere long enough to go out the door and go, hey, I know every being on this land here. I know all of them. 
because I've built a relationship with them. Yeah. So for me, building that relationship and coming to see the land as in, in sort of a depth psychology world as a literal reflection of our psyches. And when you start engaging the world and you open, you know, this sort of inner outer barrier opens, there's a way in which psyches is quite literally, not just metaphorically, like literally engaging with the natural world. And the, and the natural world are more than human kin, the plants, the animals, the beings underground in the sky. They are responding to that. Yeah. It's not just a circumstance. It's not just a, um, oh, what's the term Jung uses all the time? Uh, happens at the same time. Anyway, it's not just a, just a happens to happen. It's yeah. sy- 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 synchronicity. This word. Synchronicity. Anyway, synchronicity. There. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. It's not like the base level of synchronicity. I know we get right. kind of. It's like it's an actual engagement, yeah. and every being on that land knows you're there. Yeah. They're not objective mechanical objects that are just must get nuts, must bury seed, must you know. It's like <laughs> that's not what's happening. They're going, hey, I see you. What's going on? Oh, you're praying. All right, cool. Like I'm about that. You know. Yeah. So. To me, if we don't engage that way, if if the cultural technologies of time on land, vision fast work, um, engaging the internal and the external that way, instead of just in group therapy or one-on-one therapy or in urban context, like we, I don't want to doomsday, but I was like, that is a vital cultural technology that must be maintained and must be yeah. built. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. And like, I feel like the way that I've, the way that I teach astrology <laughs> is very much about like, okay, spend a little bit of time, like looking at the screen, looking at this chart, but like recognize that this is, is out there, you know, like there, this is just a representation of what's out there. And the way to learn about these things is to go outside and listen and to exist within them. And, um, I think you've talked about this too, but like the natural world has taught me so much more, I feel like, than like books or, you know, like I learn out there and then I come, like this was an experience I kept having um, and still have. And, and sometimes it's more potent than others, but like I'd have an idea or an epiphany or something like some concept that I was trying to work out. And then I would come back to this world and read books or learn about things in courses. And like what that was really doing was confirming or giving words to what I was already experiencing naturally. And that was super profound to recognize like if we could just get like quiet and still enough and clear enough in a way like how much is just inside us already you know um well inside of us and already out there. right That's exactly the- exactly yeah all of both <laughs> <laughs> and this is what i love about you know the vision fast work school of lost borders is is a godsend like i like i feel even emotional saying that like i'm so thankful that they've built a lineage mm-hmm. because you can get all the readings you want. You can work with all the gurus you want. You can do all the therapy you want. Not that it won't be effective. Not that you won't learn a lot. If you spend four days out there sitting with it, <laughs> yeah. you will learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. You know, and you won't just learn it. You'll feel it. It is an embodied, sensuous, like experience. Right. Yeah. So it, to me, I'm just like, yeah, I'm I'm kind of switching my tune where I'm like, I'm I'm getting more into like, how can we actually like I love the archetypal systems and also there's a lot of simplicity in just being on the land and then being witnessed by community in that, yeah. in that land as well. Um, yeah. And you had to speak to, 
you know, it's like we have, I think about archetypes um, and it's cool to engage with them in like myth, but like when you're staring at Jupiter rising every morning or every night um, and you're thinking about the archetype of Jupiter and you're having a psychosomatic experience, it's like you're engaging with Jupiter. <laughs> like yeah, it's exactly. not. <laughs> Which is all it like... used to be, of course, right? Like that's how astrology was graded. Like we, this wasn't about charts. It was about looking at the sky and knowing what was there and what was happening. And like, yeah, just magnificent. Totally. Um, yeah. So I want to talk about meta metamodernism. Um, you call yourself a metamodernist. I'd love to define what that means um, and how that's integrated into your work. Yeah. So um, metamodernism to me was was literally like life changing. Like it felt like I finally had uh, uh, just a straight up like a and maybe an ethic of a philosophy for for just really holding a complex experience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can think of it in multiple ways. So metamodernism is, is an art movement. Uh, it's a cultural epoch that we're moving into. It's a developmental stage. We've kind of given like Gravesian theory, spiral dynamics, integral theory. Um, it would be the integral stage or the metamodern stage as it's called sometimes. And so from that, we, we've moved in. And when you do art, um, like history or critical art theory, you you see this movement. Right? We're always looking at this movement of how arts develop and shift and change. So the modern modernism is a project that's been going on since the Industrial Revolution. And it is this reductionist and it has its root in the Enlightenment. Um, and it, it is this reductive, mechanistic, objective, science-driven saying that we're going to find absolute truth and there's a progress orientation. There's man over nature. There's this, there's this thing of like, we are going to overcome and progress towards God in some way, even if they didn't, if they didn't believe in God, there was still this teleological impulse towards something larger, something bigger, and we're going to become that. Right. Yeah. And of course that's extremely extractive. It's, you know, mind the world It's created climate chaos and crisis and, um, to all walk towards this some thing again, another narrative of of, of perfection or absolute truth, yeah. um, and all of that's bound in whiteness and capital and colonialism and um, purity thinking, and you know it's all it's all still completely bound to more traditionalist or religious thought. Yeah. And then we came in the postmodern, and that was the antithesis of the modern age the modern age which was so sure you know the world wars are a modern experience right the reason right. you know people people thinking that they are eugenics is modern you know in that sense right. um yeah postmodern was an antithesis it was going screw all of this oh and especially in the art movement oh you this is art and art is only what the academics say it is and it's like well you know here's a, a urinal i call it art you know yeah. um, that's this complete flipping on its head and a lot of postmodern thinkers that get kind of named are um, oh, Leotard. Why am I forgetting his first name? But, you know, Leotard and, um, wow, I'm losing names right now, but I have faces. But either way, <laughs> so postmodernism was, is this movement that has, and has also created the, um, you know, the, the civil rights movement. Right. It was also this postmodernism all of a sudden said, OK, this modern white agenda might not be the only agenda. Actually, there's many perspectives. There's a plurality of perspectives. 
And it is this deconstruction of truth. And deconstruction is so useful. This is the critical eye that goes, I actually don't know if I believe that. Actually, are you sure? I, oh, you think you know, but actually somebody else might know. Yeah. And it's also a place where we started to get a little um, romanticized about indigenous ways of being too, where we started going, oh, they, they have knowledge and indigenous people are going to do this because they're not modern and modern humans are cancers. And I don't, I don't subscribe to any of that narrative. Um, so in this postmodern age, which to some people say is like 20 to 30% of us are sort of in a postmodern thinking where we are constantly deconstructing power and power structures. And it's so valuable. And then there's people who hate that and just try to go back. Metamodern is a metaxis between them. It is a swinging between the modern and the postmodern. And it's, it has terms like pragmatic idealism and ironic sincerity, right? Love, yeah. and, and to me, I love that. And, and I think millennials and Gen Z are, that ironic sincerity is on deck, especially for Gen Z. I see it, yeah. that this sort of like, I everything's ironic, everything's sarcastic, everything's a joke. And at the same time, there's a seed of sincerity underneath it that says, mm-hmm. I can no longer... Because postmodernism can just leave us in nihilism. There is no truth. Everything's bullshit. Everything's made up. Instead of, and then the metamodern kind of brings in, well, if everything's made up, we can still engage with the teleology. We can still walk towards something. We can still willfully, ignorantly say we're going to save the world and have no fucking clue how we're going to do that. But we're still going to do it. And at the same time, make fun of ourselves. Like, look at us. We want to save the world. We think we can save the world. Literally my whole podcast. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, and, and, and I think people who are working with myth in this subjective way are already engaged with that, right? Because mm-hmm. they're going, this isn't literal. Like, it's not literal. Like, I'm not trying to be literal. And we can engage with it and walk with it towards something. And there's this concept called protopia. And protopia is not utopian. It's not everything's going to be magical and eco designs and biomimicry is going to save the world. And we're just going to live in yurts and that's going to solve everything. Right. (laughs) It's utopias. It's better tomorrow than it was yesterday, or it's better today than it was yesterday, which is these small pragmatic steps towards something as the world is burning down before us, just continuing to walk with the teleology, continuing to walk yeah. with the purpose. With the, we're going to, something is going to emerge from this fecundity of complexity that is emerging around us. Mm-hmm. We're going to walk with that as opposed to saying, oh, it's all bullshit. Let's just burn it all down. Or saying like, we're going to overcome it and terraform and do all this stuff. It's like, we can terraform and we can acknowledge that it's all bullshit and burn down and we can walk towards it. Yeah. Terraform and be- a modernist idea. Right. Yeah. I love this idea of pragmatic idealism. I haven't quite used those words before, but I, I often talk about that and I agree. I think generationally, a lot of us are trying to figure out like, what is the outer limit of possibility that can actually be manifested, you know? Um, and sort of like playing in that space, like really exploring the outer edge and, and, I don't know, for me, it's been really interesting to kind of see where something is really just idealist and unrealistic, but also surprised by what isn't and what is capable of existing tangibly or being created tangibly. Um, and I want to segue that idea into indigenous futures um, and talk about that. 
uh, because I know you have a sort of unique take on it and where you see us going in that respect. Um, so yeah, what is Indigenous Futures? What is your work in that space? Yeah. So Indigenous Futurism was a coin, a term coined in 2014 by Grace L. Dillon, who's a um, professor of Indigenous studies in, uh, oh, is it Portland? I think it's Portland. Um, and it is, of course, sort of in the legacy of Afrofuturism, which was created, coined in the early 90s. And it was about this art movement of working with mo like modern, not necessarily in the modernist sense, but like modern technologies and indigenous thought. So like on the basic level, it was, you know, Star Wars, sci-fi that was nativeized, right? It was like mm. put on a level of stuff everywhere, especially here in Santa Fe. Um, it was thinking about this sort of sci-fi aesthetic that went along with cultural elements, right? So early Afrofuturists would have been Sun Ra or um, Octavia Butler, right? Mm. Before there was Afrofuturists, people working with Black identity and Afro-identity and um, connecting to that, to these scientific themes. And that's kind of yeah. what it started as. So there's these themes there. But it actually started to expand a little bit just outside of the arts. I think the arts is always the place where it starts that this isn't just about making cool kind of sci-fi indigenous art. Um, this is actually about reclaiming identity. And then after reclaiming identity as being like, I'm a modern indigenous person that exist, I exist in the future. My mm -hmm. people exist in the future. My ways exist in the future. They're not actually going to be subsumed. So what is that going to look like? And so indigenous futurisms are creations by indigenous artists that imagine a future in which indigenous cosmologies, technologies, sciences, um, identities are in the future. Whether they engage with Western technology and integrate it, or they have their own complete technologies that have nothing to do with Western, they are these seeds. And so for me, the 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 pragmatic the metamodern sort of pragmatic, what are we going to do about the future has, has two sides. One is what's here now, which is being able to configure complexity, being able to expand not only in our own systems, our internal complexities, but being able to expand to hold the complexity of the situation and nothing's black and white. And okay, now that I can hold that, I can walk with it and maybe something will emerge. And then there's this, this act of planting seeds and this is a thing that I, I just wrote an article about this. It's going to be published next year in a reader on global contemporary art about indigenous futurism. This fine line between prophecy and, um, and, and fiction, hmm. right? And Octavia Butler's like the progenitor in my mind of this, where it's like literally parable of the sower is an oracle, like it is quite literally like the things she describes, the experiences she describes, so many of them have actually been reflected in reality down to Donald Trump's slogan of make America great again, which is a trip. Like, I don't know, it was like <laughs> mind blown when I read that book. Um, that this line that when, when we engage from a, a place that holds the complexity of, of the moment that we're in, and we imagine a fiction, a spec, we speculate. When we speculate, we actually prophesize. We imagine what can happen in the future. Mm -hmm. And from that, if we create many stories, many situations, many things like that, that literally informs the emergence of that. And so prophecies are not things that are preordained. Prophecies are things that are lived into. They're myths, they're meta narratives 
that hold people and we walk towards them. And the prophecies of indigenous people all over the world, for them, they, they are true. And for me, they are some that are true. And they're something that we live into. We make real, right? Hmm. And so for me, indigenous futurisms is not just about like, oh, cool, here's a Darth Vader with, you know, Pueblo designs. Awesome. Love that. Huge Star Wars fan. Amazing. It's also about being like, can we imagine futures that become the seeds of, or they become prophecies that are seeds for an emergent future that a generation or two generations from now, there's children reading about their culture in the many thousands of years in the future. And that's helping their thinking about how they move through the world. That's creating the myths in which they live their lives. Mm-hmm. So that's indigenous futurism to me is necessary because I don't believe the Western colonial modern futurism of looking at technology in a like neo-modernist sense of is going to be the way we overcome complexity. It's going to be about living into complexity and indigenous ways of beings have always lived into complexity. The cosmologies have always been an understanding of the kinship and interrelation that is complex and has to have many, many, many stories to uh, explain, you know? So that's where I'm like indigenous thought. And I don't feel too like it's, it's essential to the future. Like it's not just like a cool idea and it's not just, I'm feel ashamed of genocide. And so we should listen to indigenous people. It's like, it's a viable technologies and cosmologies that will allow us to walk through complexity. Yeah. I mean, and, and allow all of us to, right. I mean that, I think this is a, like a big problem that so many of us, myself included, you know, we're totally stripped of our identities and our ancestry and our lineage and are desperately trying to figure out how to belong to the place that we're in. And I think, you know, I, I have a lot of like, empathy and sympathy, of course, for this idea of like reclaiming land. And, but there has to be some sort of like a kin network and collective way in which we're all moving forward. Um, so yeah, I think that's really interesting to sort of bridge these worlds in a way and move forward in that respect. And that's why for me, the metamodern thinking is vital because metamodern is the only one that can integrate plurality. Mm-hmm. You know, and postmodern right. is just being plurality is everywhere and nothing's true. Metamodernism is really trying to say there's plurality and how can we integrate? And to me, there's a movement of critical thinking animus, not just not to throw shade on some people, but not just being like, I like kind of witchy things or like I like being sort of a nature baby, yeah. um, which is beautiful. Thank you. Great. Um, but like actually deeply engaging with animist thought as a way forward. And I love Nordic animist Rune. I don't know how to say his last name. Harno. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's doing this. Yeah. Like I really see that. And for me, it is getting people reconnected to if they can't connect to their own lineages, their own ancestry and sort of call some of those things back, not go back to them, call them forward right uh, that's what's needed or rooting into place or creating new ways of being that are animate in some way you know? yeah yeah i love this i mean i think it's like all of these this is a, such an example of you know where we sort of begun around how do we kind of reclaim and either rewrite or just redefine these stories for ourselves and 
there's such a sense of, I think, also just like agency and empowering empowerment in that, you know, like to be like, okay, I came from these places with all of these different things and I live here. And how am I going to put these all together and really create a narrative and a story that makes sense for me? And that's empowering and that's inclusive. And um, there's so many possibilities, you know, <laughs> like you could just, you could be working on that forever. And um, yeah, I don't know, for me, that that feels that feels nice. I love the tinkering and the, the, the complexity. For some reason, I'm just like a weirdo that finds complexity, like far more grounding than, than a lack thereof. Um, Same. And I, and I, one last thing I want to name there um, is, you know, I had a dream when I lived in San Francisco for quite a long time and I was always considering like, how do we maintain the, the numinous and the sacred and the ritual in an urban environment, a technologically rich environment, how can we infuse technology with ritual and things? And, and I just had this dream and vision of like, what would it be like to come to a street corner and give offerings to, a, you know, there's maybe a couple of trees on the street. It's all cement because that's where my father danced and that's where my mm. grandfather and before there was cement, that was where my great-grandfather danced, right? To continue these, even in the face of modernity, in the face of the modern Western colonial project, and to infuse the, the mundane objective reality, to enchant it with a subjective lens that when I walk to the street corner, it's not just a street corner. It's like, this is a place that I'm home, you mm-hmm. know? And I think there's people that are multi-generational in urban centers that have that sense, you know? Um, but because so many of us move, anyway, go into more things, but, you know... It's, yeah. I, I have the dream that how can we enchant the modern world, you know, because urbanization is not going anywhere. Right. You know, it's, it's not. So, yeah. Um, how can we enchant it? Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> uh, what, if you could tell the listeners where they can find you and learn more about your work. And then also I ask, um, everyone that I have on the show to recommend a book or two that was, um, meaningful for you. It could be about what we talked about um, or something totally different. And I know with all your Gemini and Mercury, you probably read a lot like me. So this is a difficult question. <laughs> um, but yeah, if there's just one or two come that come to mind, um, what yeah. are they? Um, so I'll, I'll do books first. So yeah, this has been so important before shields by Stephen Foster and Meredith little, um, mm. those are the creators of the school of lost borders. It felt like this is such a powerful, simple archetypal depth, yeah. Love that. Oh, God, yeah, there is so many. Let's just <laughs> okay. with that one. Love it. Maybe David Abram a little bit. Yeah. So um and yeah, you can you can find me. I'm mostly on Instagram. I wish I was a little more like had everything set up the way that I would like, but that's coming. So find me on Instagram at arc.remnant and um at my website archaicremnant.com. And yeah, human design readings, mending and myth group programs. I have a lot more things coming down the line that I take my time with them. So podcasts coming out soon that I will hopefully be doing as well. Um, and yeah, I do have a podcast called the indigenous futures podcast that's been in remission for a little while, but I'm ramping it back up. So feel free to find that anywhere. Awesome. Thank you so much, Teo. This was awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Anya. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for sticking around and listening to that conversation. I highly recommend checking out Teo's work if you have not already. Um, one quick note, he did change his Instagram handle between when we recorded this a few days ago and now. Um, and so you can find him on Instagram just by searching his name, Teo Montoya. 
uh, and then there's an underscore afterwards. So in case you want to find him, that's how to do it. I think his website address is still the same. Uh, but yeah, really looking forward to hearing your thoughts about this episode. Uh, you can always leave a comment about your feedback or if this conversation sparked a question or an insight or a reflection, we'd love to hear it. Uh, you can comment on every post, every podcast at anyakots.substack.com. I am going to play you out today with a song that uh, most of you will probably recognize, but that I had forgotten about for like years. Um, I was overhearing Chris listen to Rick Beato's channel the other day. He's a YouTuber, a uh, music producer who has who puts out a ton of videos um, breaking different songs down, like lists of the greatest hits of, you know, the 70s and the 80s. Um, and I was we were in a hotel room the other day and I was hearing Chris listen to his uh, recap or list of the one hit wonders of the 90s. And I knew every single one of them, which was hilarious because I feel like I overhear Chris listening to Rick Beato a lot. And there's a lot of songs I don't know or can't recognize or can't name the artist or. And I, I knew not only did I know all of these songs, but I knew all of the lyrics to all of the songs, um, which made me feel like, oh, maybe I belong to the 90s. Like I'm not musically illiterate. It's just that that was my that was my period of time. Like, I guess that was my era. Um, so that, uh, reminded me of a lot of really great songs from the nineties, including you get what you give by new radicals, uh, which like, I don't know how you could possibly listen to the song without wanting to get up and dance and move your body or just at least like feel really fucking good. It's just awesome. And, uh, I also thought it related to today's conversation with Teo and yeah, it's just great. So if you have the capacity to dance, or at least to sing, because I feel like probably a lot of you remember this song too and also remember the lyrics like I do. Um, I recommend it. Uh, just get excited and go crazy and sing and dance and flail about because why the fuck not? Sending you all my love wherever you are and looking forward to releasing episodes a bit more regularly and uh, once I'm stable in Crestone, which will be in the next couple days. And yeah, looking forward to this long winter hibernation. And I hope this season of decay and death and metamorphosis and compost is treating you well, even with its sort of dark, prickly bits. Catch you next time.
the king.